This morning, we're going to continue our series in Jonah. So if you're not already there, please take your Bible and turn to Jonah chapter 2. This summer, probably almost everyone in this room were uh, made became aware of, a, of quite a worldwide news story about 12 young boys, uh, part of a soccer team and their coach in Thailand, how they had ventured into caves and uh, gotten quite deep into the caves and the floodwaters came up and they were trapped. It took about uh, seven days for them to even be discovered as to where they were. It's quite a labyrinth in that cave system there. And it was... Um, probably about 17 days until they were actually rescued. And, you know, the world breathed a sigh of relief. There was one tragedy, but the boys were all rescued and their coach at that time. Outside of the caves before you go in are signs that warn you not to go into the caves. Uh, News agencies report that the Tham Lang non-caves are known locally as off-limits, a dangerous place where parents warn their children not to go into, especially during the monsoon season. So as excited as we are and were for their rescue, they needed rescue because of their own doing. They were the manufacturers of their own peril. And before we sit in judgment on them like we sometimes do, like even in British Columbia here, when people go off the beaten path on one of our mountains and there has to be this big rescue, don't you just kind of inside go, what were they doing out of bounds like that? And, and we sit a little bit in judgment. But haven't all of us at some point in our lives, and maybe you're in that place right now, where you've made decisions, you've, you've ignored the signs, maybe ignored the scripture, and you find yourself in a difficult place of your own doing. If you've ever been there, if you're ever tempted to go there, Jonah's story has something to say to us this morning. Last week, as we started into the story, we saw that Jonah is a, he's a prophet. He is uh, one of those company of men who have this special privilege of they are entrusted with God's word. God speaks to them, communicates to them, and they're entrusted with those words uh, to speak it faithfully to the people that he's called them to speak to. This, and, and so prophets were known to be trustworthy, but we saw in Jonah's case, he gets a particularly difficult word from God, and instead of walking into obedience with it and going east to Nineveh, where he was called to go, Jonah exits west. He goes down to Joppa, he gets on a ship that's going to take him to Tarshish, which is, if we we have it right, is a city probably in Spain, which at that time was as far as you could go in the known world, a place of great trade and commerce, and, and maybe Jonah thought freedom and prosperity, and he's on his way there. As we saw in the story, God doesn't let him go too far, and God brings up a storm and Jonah is in peril in the storm along with those that are on the boat with him. And it comes to light that the reason that they're in trouble is because of Jonah. As God deals with Jonah's disobedience, they are all in peril. And so the, Jonah says, if you throw me overboard, it'll take this, you know, that'll take care of the storm. And, but the, the mariners who worship other gods don't want to do that, so they try and row to shore, but they, they can't beat the storm. And so against their desires, They take Jonah and do as he suggested, 
and they throw him overboard, and as they do that, if you can imagine being there in that moment, everything goes calm. The sailors were incredibly impacted by that, and it says that they, they worshiped, they made commitments to the Lord. That's the personal name of God revealed to his people, Israel, Yahweh. They made personal commitments to Yahweh, to God in that moment. So moving upon them. And then as the, the, the waters are, are still and I can hear the sound of just a little bit of waves, you know, bouncing off the boat. Um, it's quiet and, and they're numb after what they've just experienced. And as far as they know, that's it for Jonah. He's dead and gone. Like that's it for him. But we read in this story an unexpected, unbelievable rescue. Verse 17, the last verse of Jonah chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Unbelievable rescue. Now when we use the word unbelievable in our personal lives, sometimes it can be used in a really positive way. Like when you've experienced something was over the top, like you didn't expect it. It was so good that you, when you're talking to people, you say, oh, it's unbelievable. And that's meant to convey, like if you hadn't have experienced it yourself, you just wouldn't believe it. But you do believe it. But it's unbelievable. It's over the top. Sometimes we use the word unbelievable to mean, I don't believe it. I, this can't possibly be true. This must be fake. And so here we have a story of Jonah, and we have a storm and sailors fighting a storm. And, and we, can, we can resonate with that. And, God, and God's introduced into the picture. And yeah, we can believe that there's a God who is sovereign, and he, he can command storms and that kind of thing. But then you get to this part of a man being swallowed by a great fish, and he lives for three days and three nights like Come on. A while back, my family and I, we were on holidays, and I don't know, we wanted to chill this one night, so we're going to watch a movie. I don't know who was responsible for picking this movie. I don't think anybody will own up to it today. But it was an international movie uh, with subtitles, and so you know it's got, the, it's got the opportunity to be different here. So we're watching this movie, and, and as we begin to get into it, we're looking at each other, and we're going, wow, this is really good. I, I didn't expect this. This is really gripping. And, and the story goes on, and it's, it's really grabbing us. We're, we're really getting into it. But then we're about halfway into the movie, and today we figure the, the, the scriptwriter must have died. And someone else who was very incompetent took his place. Because the movie was very realist, realistic up to that halfway point, and then it went all sideways. It got crazy. It got ridiculous. And, and was, we're watching what's going on. And so one thing happened, then another. It was just, no, that's not possible. That's so fake. And I hate fake stuff, let me tell you. That was so fake. We started laughing at the movie. Not with the movie. We started laughing at the movie. And to this day, if you mention that movie, we'll just, we'll just all giggle and get you know, satirical about it. It was just unbelievable. 
So here we have this story with Jonah. It's sort of realistic at the front, but then we get to this part, and it's even written differently. It's written poetic now what we, where, where, where we just looked at. What's going on here? Is this, is this like, this can't be true? And for some of you, it, it jeopardizes even your belief in the Bible. If you have to believe in Jonah being swallowed by a great fish, it jeopardizes your belief in Scripture. So let me help you a little bit this morning. You need to know that there, within the Christian community, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, full-on followers of Jesus, there are two different ways, two different camps as to how they look at the book of Jonah. The first camp are people like myself who believe Jonah's an historical story, that the events that are being relayed to us here happened in history as they are written. But there's another camp of Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, Christ-following people who don't believe that Jonah should be taken that way. Who believe that, yes, Jonah is a real person. He's mentioned in other places in the Bible. But the writer is taking this real person and he's inserting that person, Jonah, into a parabolic story. It's a parable. And just as you would read comics differently than you would read the front page of the news, so they would say, you need to read Jonah in a different light than you would other parts of historical scripture. This is not about whether you believe in miracles or not, because every Christian has to believe in miracles. Why do I say that? Because at the very foundation of our faith is the belief that Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead. Now that is a miracle. The question around Jonah is simply a question of intent. What did the author intend for us? How did he intend for Jonah to be taken? I take it still as historical. Others may not. But the point is, you don't have to be in one camp or the other to realize that this story has so much meaning, so much to convey to us in truth this morning. So stay on the journey with me as we venture further into Jonah, this unexpected, unbelievable, and let me say, multi-layered rescue. Multi-layered when our kids were younger, uh, we used to go to this church where there were lots of young families. Our kids were, uh, some of them were at the age where you still had to take them to kids' church and stay at the back. Otherwise, you know, if you left right away, it'd be quite the drama scene, lots of tears and all. So you don't want that. So you bring them there, you leave them with the, the leaders of the kids' church, and you stand at the back every once in a while, your child looks back, you're there, okay, all's good. And... Um, we had, um, we were really gifted with this man in our church. His name was Bill, and he was an incredible storyteller. And Bill had the ability to teach children on one level, but on another level to, 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 to I mean, he would tell zingers to the adults that the kids never got. So he's teaching the kids. They're at this, you know, ground level. They're taking it all in. And then he'd, he'd, he'd have this multi-layered communication that would go to the adults, and we're all just, oh, we're laughing in the back row there. And then the kids would turn around, like, why are the parents laughing? So maybe we should be laughing. Ha, 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 You know, that, that was the experience. Multi-layered. So as we look at the story of Jonah, there's multi-layers of meaning that are going on for us. First layer Tim Mackey, who is one of the co-founders of the Bible Project, is really good at connecting the dots in this way for us. He talks about how the prophets 
have this consistent method and way of communication when they're speaking to the nation of Israel. So often, unfortunately, God is speaking through them to bring them back into a right relationship with God. And so they are confronting God's people with their sin, their rebellion against God. Part of their confrontation is to warn them about an impending exile, that they are going to be exiled by Babylon. But beyond that, there's still a word of hope with these prophets, and that's why you see these mixed messages, because they they prophesy a word of restoration, a word of new beginning. But this this is the message of the prophets, and Jonah's sitting right in there in the middle of the prophets. We look at Hosea, one of the other prophets, in chapter 8. He says, set the trumpet to your lips, one like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. But Israel has spurned the good, the enemy shall pursue him. Doesn't that sound a bit like Jonah? We read in chapter 1 when he says to the, the sailors, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And yet what is he doing? He's completely disobeying God. He's running in the opposite direction. So later Hosea will say, Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as useless vessel, for they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. This is the language of the prophet as they're confronting them. They'll be swallowed up. They'll be gathered up. We read in Jeremiah some amazing words along that same vein. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. Some translations say sea monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. Some translations say he has spewed me out. Does this sound like any story you've ever heard of recently? To be swallowed up by a monster? To be spewed out? A psalmist written after the prophet's Talk in similar language. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. What's happening in Jonah's story? Raging waters. You know, big storm swallowing up. This is the language of the prophets as they speak to God's people. So Jonah is like a reenactment of this. He is like a representative of the nation of Israel. And as Israel is hearing these words, God's people hearing these words, and as we hear these words as God's people in the New Testament, it's causing us to think about our actions and the way that we are hearing God. Are we moving in the direction that God has called us to? Are we rebelling like Jonah? And if we are rebelling, what what can we expect? What kind of swallowing up will there be? But beyond that, then, what kind of restoration could there also be possible? This is one of the multi-level ways in which Jonah is speaking to us. That's the first level. Second level, a man in the belly of a fish, three days, three nights in a dark place. What does that sound like? A man who appears to be dead. 
living on this side of, of history, I mean, we have, no, we have no doubt about who this is pointing towards. Jonah is a type of Jesus. After Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead, at the end of Luke's good news, we call it the gospel, uh, there's a, an account of Jesus joining a couple of disciples who have gone from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus. And, and as they're walking along, Jesus joins them, and they're sad, and they're, they've got all these questions. And so Jesus asks them, like, what are you guys talking about? And they say to him, don't you know what's been going on in, in our city? Like, Jesus, we thought he'd be the hope of the world, the salvation of Israel. And so Jesus has to point out to them the truth. He says to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. No doubt he pointed them to Jonah and how Jonah points to Jesus. Jesus is the antitype of this prophet. So Jonah and Jesus lived in the same geographical area. Jonah's called to obey God but disobeys. Jesus is called to obey God but obeys. Jonah suffers involuntarily. Jesus voluntarily. Jonah uh, apparently has died. Jesus really died and did so by his own choice. Jonah Jesus says, points to me. We read in, when the uh, Pharisees were, were coming to him and asking him a question, they want to see a sign. But Jesus says to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah, rescued by a most unexpected vessel, a great fish. Jesus, his rescue comes through a most unexpected vessel, not a great fish, but the cross. The cross would become the vehicle of rescue. Nobody would expect that. The Jews saw it as a stumbling block. The Greeks as foolishness. Muslims today reject it. And yet it's this unexpected vessel of mercy that becomes the gateway, the vehicle for people, for everyone who will put their faith and trust in Jesus through his death on that cross, his blood shed for them for their forgiveness, and the victory that he brought through his resurrection for every person that puts their faith and trust in them. They are brought to the other side into a new life. Jonah points to Jesus in a most beautiful and marvelous way. This multi-layered, unbelievable rescue speaking to Israel, speaking to us, speaking to, to um, God's church, God's people, showing us Jesus and then reaching to us personally. We read in Jonah chapter 2 verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. This is Jonah's summary of what happened to him. He, 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 he's in distress. He's in the worst place possible. 
But he cries out to the Lord, and God hears him. That's the summary of his story. He's in trouble, calls out to God. What does God do? God hears him. A rescue comes. Jonah had run away, and it had been bad. The situation in the whale is bad. Let me just look at some words here and what he's written in poetic form. And when you see poetry inserted into God's um, history in particular, it's really trying to get your attention. Jonah wants us to know things were really bad. For you cast me into the deep, verse 3, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away. This is as low as you can go. The roots of the mountains, a dark place in the belly of the fish. Can you think of a more hopeless situation? I mean, really, can you? There's no hope. If you're writing a realistic story, we'd say there is no hope for this man, Jonah. And he's there by God's doing. In Hebrews, when we look at the New Testament and we see how we should look sometimes at our difficult circumstances, in Hebrews chapter 12, it talks about how God disciplines us. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, speaking of our earthly parents, as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful. It's not a good place to be. It doesn't seem great. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This morning I've invited a guest for an interview. She's not just walking up here on her own. Well, that may have arrested your attention. This is Dora Isaac. And Dora, welcome here. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, where you are in your season of life and what you do. Um, my husband Gordon and I have a hobby farm in Yarrow, and I do um, equine assisted learning or horse therapy. It's connecting people and horses for to an experience of 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 therapy of healing and wholeness. Um, we have lots of youth at risk. And a lot of them come from foster care situations and. Um, We have women in rehab. One of the groups that we've really connected well with is called Mercy Canada. And we are actually partnering with them, um, women in rehab and and recovery. Um, Oh, we have a variety of of clients. And by the way, thank you so much for that song, Freedom Reigns. That's the name of our group. It's Freedom Reigns Equine Connections. And that was not planned. That was a God thing this morning. Yeah, I morning. think that shows how God's working. Now, you're, you obviously haven't been doing this um, your whole life, but your youth uh, really plays into how you got today, where you are today. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your youth sure. and growing up. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. Um, life was good. Um, 
I felt loved and, and nurtured. Um, tried to connect with horses. That was a thing for me um, as much as I could. But being a, a pastor's daughter, there wasn't money to have a horse. So um, I delved into sports and played basketball. Um, I think I played pretty good <laughs> citywide. And the off-season, I, I did... Um, track and field and my race was the 100 yard dash. I had my five minutes of fame when I broke a record in Calgary um, at a sport meet. So, Way to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then your life took a turn. What happened? Well, let me finish the other part. Okay. <laughs> I um, I was in a part. I was in a youth group in a church, and it was going well. I had friends, and uh, yeah, life was life was good. Um, my faith was, I would say, uncomplicated and sincere. And then a life turn. took a turn. <laughs> As I entered high school, new friends took me to new adventures, new experiences, and um, introduced me to partying. And um, being the person that I am, embracing things pretty wholeheartedly. Um, I wanted to really fit in, and so um, I eventually decided that, yeah, I wanted to try out this life and see how the other people lived, not just the Christians, right? So I left home. I didn't want my parents to feel responsible for my behavior, so I, I left my parents. I left my home. I left the church, I left school, and I thought I was leaving God, but that's not something you can do, is it? Hmm. Then what happened? Well, eventually I found myself in a place, uh, if you know Calgary, outside of Calgary, about 50 kilometers is a place called Bragg Creek, and a beautiful little community in the country, um, and near Bragg Creek was, uh, was a, a dude ranch where they had horses for hire. Now, this house I was living in was not a good situation. It was a party house, and, uh, and it really wasn't good. I started being drawn by the horses out to that ranch regularly, and then uh, more and more I, I would get out there as often as I could, and just to, to be with the horses it was a much healthier atmosphere. It was good for me. Till the people who owned the place finally offered me a job. I was there most of the time anyways, so they gave me a job. They found out my story, and they let my parents know where I was, and they were very relieved. And, uh, yeah. Um, God took me through a lot during that period of time. Um, he, through a, a series of events, he let me lose my self-confidence. If you can imagine, you have no confidence. I knew that I'd made mistakes. My decision-making um, capabilities were obviously flawed in the mistakes I, I made and the choices that I made. And so that really brought me down on my knees before God. If you can imagine, no confidence. How do you even go in a restaurant and sit down and have a coffee with somebody? It's, you, you don't even have the confidence to, to relate and to, to be your person. And thank God he didn't leave me there. He's brought me out of that. But he has so in my heart laid a burden on me to 
draw the youth out of their situation. Using horses, in my case, it's a specialty, um, but he is the one that's doing it, and it's drawing them out to him for healing and for wholeness. That's great. Thank you, Dora. Just give your hand, please. Thank you. Dora is my sister. When she was 16 years of age, that's when it all started to unravel for her. And being a brother four years younger and my other brother four years younger than me, we watched her story unfold. She's downplaying a little bit her athleticism. She was a rock star in our city as a grade 10 amongst playing with grade 11 and grade 12ers. Set a uh, city, city 100-yard dash record as a grade 10er in our city. She was a rock star in our eyes. But then we saw her life unravel as she made some poor decisions. She, she had been a sister who had all the confidence in the world, who could take the world by the storm. And we saw God bring her to a place of no confidence. God had to discipline. He had to bring hardship to her in order to bring her to that place where she would say, brought her to her knees, brought her to that place of prayer. As we look at Jonah's life, it's a similar thing. Scripture in the New Testament says we learn from the stories of the Old Testament. They are to teach us, even to keep us, it says in 1 Corinthians, to keep us from doing evil. They're, they're to stand as something to learn from. And so we learn from Jonah's story, places not to go, but we learn about God, what he, how God responds to us when we've made bad decisions, when we find ourselves in a hard place. He loves us enough to discipline us, but he just wants to get us to the point where we're turned back to him. And that's what the rest of Jonah's poem here is relating to us. This difficult circumstances, the weeds wrapped around his head, being at the very bottom of the ocean, the roots of the mountains, darkness in there, place of no hope, the bars of death closing in on him. It brought him to a place of clarity. And God will do that if it's necessary. He'll bring us to that place of clarity. We read at the end of this poem in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah comes to that point where he can see that there's nothing that matters in this world except God, a relationship with God and his love. He'd been running from God's presence, and now he's reminded of how much he values it. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And I'm sure Jonah had been judgmental about other pagans who worshipped other gods. But in this story, they show themselves to be more righteous than Jonah. And I think when Jonah writes that, he's, he's recognizing there's idols, there's, there's things in his own life that have kept him from full-on devotion, allegiance, and obedience to God. They're worthless. Jonah's come to a place of clarity and in this place of clarity, what, what happens? What does he do? How does he respond? And how do we respond in those places where we find ourselves in dark, difficult places? And it may not be God's doing. It may just be circumstances. But where do we, what do we find ourselves doing in those places? Jonah prays. He's on his, on his knees, if that's possible, in a fish's belly. The expression, Jonah prays. And worships. You see, God just wants to get us back to the right place. And the place that God wants to get Jonah back to is the place that Jonah 
needs to live. And the place that God wants us to get back to is the place for us to live. And what kind of place is it? A place where we recognize that no matter what's out there, whatever is tantalizing us, whether it's our own independence or whether it's something else that's trying to, to get our allegiance, our love, our desires, maybe even the approval of others, whatever those things are, they just are so worthless in comparison. They're vain in light of a relationship with God and being in that place where we are in his presence. So God wants to bring us back to that place of full-on relationship, allegiance, devotion, love. And that what naturally happens in that place is we're in a place of prayer and we're in a place of worship. Verse 9, but with the voice of thanksgiving, will, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. When we understand that salvation, that wholeness, that, that life as it's meant to be is only found in, Lord, in the Lord, then we find ourselves filled with thanksgiving and filled with worship because we can be there. We can be in that place. That's where God wants us to live. And if you're not there, that's just where God wants to bring you back to. Now one more thing around this. Most of us, as we're seeing and we're hearing these words, we're thinking about our own individual response and our own relationship with God, and we probably do not have others in that picture. Jonah was a prophet. He heard from God directly. But look what part of Jonah's poem, look what he's missing. Look what he's yearning to get back to. In two places here, he talks about the temple that he wants to get back to the temple. Verse 4, yet shall again look, I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. In verse 9, when he says, with the voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. That's temple language. In other words, as Jonah has rebelled from God and rebelled from his presence, when he thinks about being made right with God, it goes beyond just a relationship of me and God. He yearns to be with God's people in a place of worship and prayer. How often when I've um, watched people's lives and, and they're beginning to, to move away from God, maybe it's not running, sometimes it's baby steps, but they're beginning to move away from God. Some point in that process, so often, they also begin to move away from God's people. They go together. In Hebrews, we read a couple of sections there. When it, the whole book of Hebrews is about not running away from God back to your former way of life. And in that letter, there's these verses about how we need to meet together in order to keep ourselves in that right place. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you hear what the writer's saying? Like, I know there's pressure on you to move away. You're tempted to be drawn away. So here's one of the antidotes to that. Here's what you need to do. Meet together regularly. Be with other believers who can come alongside of you and say, hey, how's it going, brother? How's it going, sister? How are you doing in your walk with Jesus? Oh, you're struggling there. Well, that's all right. I'm with you. Let's go to God in prayer. And they stir one another up to love and good works. They get together and they worship. 
and they pray together and they sing songs like God is a God of miracles. And you're reminded, yeah, yeah, he is a God of miracles. That there's a place of freedom in relationship with God. Yeah, yeah, we're singing this together. Yeah, you're right. This is true. Do you see what happens when we come together? The power of assembling together as God's holy people. In the New Testament, it talks about we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of God's presence. It speaks to that, uh, that to us individually, but most assuredly it speaks to us and emphasizes that we are the temple together, corporately. That is the dwelling place of God, his presence, the Holy Spirit. God wants to bring us back to that. God wants us to live there in a place where he is all we want, all we need, full surrender, a place of prayer, a place of worship, not just in our own individual lives, but in community with those who are on the same journey together. Jonah 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish. As Jonah's found himself in that right place, spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for oh, just all the things we've been able, privileged to experience, Lord, without threat, uh, without fear of, of what we're doing, Lord, to come and to talk about you with one another, Lord, to have a coffee and, and share our lives together, Lord, to worship you in song and, and hear the words and see the words and proclaim the words that testify to you and your greatness and your activity in our lives. And then, Lord, to hear your word read, to hear your word preached, all these things, Lord, to stir us up, to keep us in that right place with you. So today I'm asking by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would fill us up. Fill us up with your presence, Lord. We want to run to you and be in that place day by day. Not just a time of church or, or meeting during a small group during the week, Lord, but 24-7. But may these moments when we gather together with your family, your body, Lord, be moments, Lord, of your presence, of your power, of your strengthening us, Lord. We just open our lives to you this morning. Lord, we come to you and we say we want you, God. We want all of you. In Jesus' name, amen.